Today, I sit down with my cousin Matthew. Over coffee and tea, we share our thoughts about generational issues that have influenced culture, family, mental health, self-care, and so much more. I'm so grateful to Matthew for being open and vulnerable and for sharing his experience of coming out to his family, his relationship with alcohol, and how he finds himself in a deep ocean of information, culture, emotions, and self-awareness. I'm Annalise Lucero, and this is The Good, The Bad, The Family. Matthew, I'm so excited that you joined me today. I'm here with my cousin. I don't first cousin, second cousin, best cousin. I don't really know what you are, but best uh, cousin. We'll go with best cousin. I think it's probably the most appropriate. Yeah, definitely. So I'm here with my best cousin, Matthew, and um, uh, he's here to chat with me today about family and life and all the things. But let's start off with sharing what we're drinking because it's Sunday morning and Sunday morning is the best morning. So um, I'll start by sharing. I'm drinking iced coffee with some oat milk, which is like, so I'm so millennial, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you don't want to see me on a day when I have dairy. So oat milk it is with your, with your still straw. I feel like the gay man here should be drinking the iced coffee with oat milk because I am just drinking, uh, three ginger uh, tea from Yogi, uh, mainly because it helps with digestive issues. And not that my stomach's upset right now, but ginger is just so calming and soothing to me. So yeah, enjoying some nice three ginger tea. Okay. I have two questions. One, do you find it interesting that we've started off talking about our drinks, but still have already managed to mention our digestive system and imply that we might be getting diarrhea if we drink dairy? Absolutely. Yes. Right. And two, what is three ginger? Like, is there more than one ginger? You know, they say three ginger, but they it's whatever, like it's probably like a placebo effect. I'm just feel fancier that it's three, you know, types of ginger. They have like three cinnamon and I doubt it's three different types of cinnamon. But, yeah, I think the foundation of our families is based on uh, just a good poop joke waiting to happen. And I think it's an implication of us being in our mid 30s that. I really kind of orient my diet and what I drink now to make sure that my stomach is going to be okay throughout the day. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I think that's something too, as, as adults that we are learning now, like in our generation, that the food that came out when we were kids, while it was exciting and probably helped our parents to make life easier and like cook faster, like hamburger helper and stuff was horrible for our bodies. And we're, you know, in our thirties, having to suffer the consequences of like totally messed up digestive systems and not being able to tolerate like processed foods at all. Oh, absolutely. For any of those, you know, you hear constantly the boomers bragging on, you know, the millennials because they're such easy targets, but they're like, we never ate that. And we turned out okay. We never did that. And we turned out okay. And I'm like, well, you guys have the highest burnout rate. You guys have higher rates of cancer and heart attacks and just overall healthcare, I don't think things are okay. I think we we had to readjust. Oh, but yeah. 
I, um, I look at like older people, especially being in the church and stuff, you're around older people a lot more than maybe just like a common person. But, um, I see older people and I'm kind of like, I don't want to be like that, you know, with 10 different pill bottles on my nightstand when I'm older, I'd, I'd like to enjoy my old age and like not be having all these problems. And so I think that's like the push yeah. of this younger generation of millennials and gen uh, X, right. Gen X, then millennials, then Gen Z. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And now we have, I mean, I'm not sure if Louie would fall into gen Z or if he'd be the new generation, gen alpha, um, depending on when the mark capers are, but yeah, it's Rodney and I have had this conversation. I think, well, numerous times, but I think like twice this week, I've told him like, we're setting down the foundation now of what we want to do later on in life. And most of it's just emotional stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I've told him like, I don't want to be closed minded. I don't want to be paranoid. I don't want to be, you know, someone who shoots down stuff. And it's hard. It's very, very hard. I think, you know, it's rare to find an adult who, you know, your go-to isn't just complaining about something. So it is, you know, Ronnie always helps bring in perspective to that. So I think it's good, you know, he commonly tells me because he teaches, you know, at the college level on these 18, 19, 20 year olds. He's like, you know, they're so emotionally intelligent and they're just so in tune with their feelings and so vulnerable. And yeah, I mean, complaining about a younger generation, I mean, that's nothing new. The older generation always thinks that the generation coming after it is just going to be the end of humankind. So why, you know, you're not setting a trend. I mean, it's just something that perpetuates itself, you know, buck the trend and be like, wow, you know, Aunt Lisa is really cool. And, you know, she's really positive and, you know, I'm glad that she has hope for the future. Oh, that's sweet. I do have hope. You kind of got me thinking about something interesting though, which is the idea of these like more kind of like in enriching conversations and like deeper conversations about finding the balance and like being open to new things. And I think that's something that I've loved about our two families. So our dads, our cousins, and we've spent a lot of time together um, from childhood, like all the way up to it to now. And I think that's, what's so interesting about our families in these like Hispanic cultures, our parents have both tried to be, tried to be open to new things, to conversations about looking at things in different ways. And I'm kind of curious, like as um, an adult man who is gay, how was that like in approaching your family? Like, what was that process like? Because were they always open to new things or is that something you've introduced into their life? You know, absolutely not. I mean, my parents were, I think my mom, let's focus on her specifically. I think she did what she thought was expected of a Hispanic Catholic mother raising kids. And it's to me, I would argue that it was something that she was not prepared for, not even prepared for, because you could argue most mothers aren't prepared for motherhood. It's something that didn't fit her well. That hat was not a good hat for her because she just went into the old modes of doing things. You know, she was, you know, um, upset, agitated, bitter. I think about motherhood, uh, much like her mother was, much like my great grandmother was mm-hmm. not affectionate. Um, 
and she didn't have a lot of resources. I mean, your mom and my mom were very, very good friends. I mean, they were on that cusp of like, you know, they rode that line between tradition and progress. And by most people's standards, they, they failed one way or the other. But I also think that, you know, they were raised by mothers who were, you know, there's a woman's place in society and it's meant to be supportive, uh, very submissive to their husband. And, you know, they grew up in the seventies where, you know, you had Gloria Steinem and, uh, um, the women's, you know, second, uh, wave of feminism coming out all combated with, you know, Phyllis Schlafly trying to put that all down. So yeah, they were raised in a very, very interesting era. And I think they did the best they could. I would say, my parents and i don't know how endemic this is of your parents like they rode they changed with the times i mean i remember my parents were very against uh gay marriage when i asked them about it back in god 2000 Mm -hmm. um and i kept that on lockdown because i knew something was different about me from um i wouldn't say pretty early age but heading into adolescence but going they they definitely i mean nancy reagan is a perfect example of this like her sentiments just changed with the times and my parents definitely wrote that i mean you could see by around like in any social movement it's very hard to get going but once it builds that inertia it's unstoppable and you would just kind of seen that in 2004 i mean it was very unpopular i mean it got it, initiatives failed in california if that says anything um but you know Within a mere 11 years, I mean, majority of Americans believed in it. The Supreme Court, you know, approved it in a Burgerfell v. Hodges and it passed. And I could tell, like my parents, like my dad, you know, on one of his many, you know, Bud Light rants was just like, you know, I think I'm cool with it. And I, I wasn't out at the time, but that was definitely a trigger to me. Like, hey, now might be a good time to bring this up. And I think mothers just are naturally more or innately more sensitive and I think my mom's sentiment, it started to change around college. By the time I wasn't like bringing girls home, I never had a girlfriend in college. I think, you know, and, you know, if you want to get real personal, I mean, your mom and my mom, I think it had conversations about me. And I mean, the writing was on the wall, like, oh, this boy's in sixth grade and watches Golden Girls. And, <laughs> oh, he really likes musicals. And, wow, he's totally down to play Barbies with the girls, you know. Wait, can I just say something really quick though? Because I never knew. And I spent a lot of time with you. And I I and I had, and I guess that's just because I didn't think about it. Like that wasn't something that I, I I'd been in theater since I was like eight years old. All the guys around me liked all that stuff. Everybody around me was into like different things. And so I think when it finally like was revealed to me or told, I don't know if it was my mom that told me or you that told me, but I was like, huh, I would have never guessed that. Like, I just didn't know. And I think it's because there's nothing different about you. So maybe just for us, it's not such like a big deal, you know, because it's like, oh, okay, sure. Whatever. Yeah. You know, there are, there are, you know, if you want to talk about, I think that's a great thing. I think that's very telling of my generation. It's like, I was raised in an era where you know, words like fag and queer were definitely used in a hurtful manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly to explain being just different. I remember like a boy in sixth grade, I was reading like Lord of the Rings and he was just like fag and <laughs> knocked the book out of my hand. And I was just like, 
you know, dude, at the end of the day, the nerds have come home to roost and we're running, we're running the show now. But, you know, um, I think that we were able to assimilate really naturally. I've always believed that I am glad that when people see me, they're just like, nothing's changed about you. And initially I was kind of like, well, what did you expect? Like assless chaps and a pink boa and a fishnet tank. But like there were the generation, you know, that was older than me than that lived through the tragedy of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, that was lifestyle. I mean, like they would leave their Midwestern homes or their very rural communities and they'd go find a life in San Francisco and New York and got to, you know, arguably be the, their true selves get to be who they felt they could be without being judged. Um, so yeah, when their families did see them, it was kind of this really sad, I don't even know you anymore. Uh, I don't know who you are. And that's, you know, I'm throwing a really big generalization out there, but I do think those are the things that, you know, I had heard about that was definitely daunting on me. I remember when I thought about coming out, I lived with three lacrosse guys that were all straight men alpha males very handsome uh who had no problem walking around nude and i was terrified to tell them because i was just like they are going to think that i was ogling them they're going to think that they lived with a sexual predator and <laughs> you know with the exception of one of them who did grow up southern baptist and a little sheltered the other two were just like, oh, dude, we knew you were gay from like, they could go. And I was like, and you still walk around naked. They're like, yeah, we're not going to change that. Like, <laughs> sorry, you know, and that was so comforting to me. They were just like, yeah, we, we kind of like, we picked up on some hints, but um, yeah, it gives me comfort that I've got to, obviously there are people before me who carved a path that allowed me to live my truest life, but nothing changed. I'm still a dork. You know, I'm still a big book nerd. I'm still down for a good poop joke and I still can, you know, um, you know, eat trashy when I want to. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're not, you're not like that stereotypical gay, like you said, with like the assless chaps and pink boa or, you know, drinking, you know, iced coffee with oat milk. Yeah, no, I'll fill that void for both of us. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, we always, we always straddle that line. I'm sure that you've encountered times, you know, it's a, it's a mix of different things, you know, being Hispanic, like how Hispanic should we be? You know, I'm gay. How gay should I be? But, you know, there are times where like I go to my parents and I just cringe at, you know, some of the stuff they're eating, not because I'm better than that, but because I'm like, oh, this is, you're complaining about a lot of like heartburn. You're complaining about a lot of like upset stomach and like, yeah, this is like diet one oh one stuff. Like this is what's causing it. But I also am like, well, with their income, like, and the fact that they shop like at Walmart superstores, like, yeah, I don't want to take a dump, you know, on everything that they do. And I was raised on this stuff too. It's just, you know, that line of like being able to transgress, you know, the generations and, you know, what our parents wanted for us is to, you know, be better off than they were. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that really speaks to what you were saying even before too, about um, how much of like social influence there is on how people parent and the decisions they make and the way that our moms grew up and even our dads. I mean, I think both of our dads have a lot of that, like machismo, traditional, like man of the house kind of mentality. And, um, 
yeah, I think that like our generation growing up and parenting, and if that's something that you and Ronnie decide to do, like, or even just interacting with children and other parents and adults, like social influence has so much to do with that. And that's why, and I know in the, one of our other podcasts, the tea time one, we were talking about cancel culture. And I just feel like I'm speaking tangentially right now, but it's okay. So (laughs) I think like the idea that we have to cancel people out and I just think, God, then like I should be canceled because I've certainly held an adopted beliefs that I would never have now today, like knowing better and having human interaction with people. And like, I might've said things or thought things. And so I think that too, about our parents that like the world that they came out of is so different than the world that we've created now. Absolutely. I mean, cancel culture is something that Ron and I talk about often and we're pretty against it just because it's quite scary in Ronnie's, you know, colleges are now, you know, quasi corporations and they're very, very interested, not in, you know, Alan Bloom argued about this, you know, 30 years ago in the closing of the American mind, you know, they're, they're not interested in getting back to, you know, the classics and the liberation of the mind, so to speak. In my opinion, you know, a college should be there to really challenge your beliefs just, you know, and you should not walk out being able to be triggered. You know, it's the old axiom, you know, uh, prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Um, but it gets very real in today's, you know, cause there've been professors at his campus that have been canceled because of something that they've said, um, Jesus, I mean, if you want to see some of the stuff that I said in high school, like, um, it, it's, it's, uh, I don't know, cringeworthy is the correct term, but it was just, I was a 17 year old kid, like, you know, and we, my thing about cancel culture is this, is I believe initially the left latched onto it because they were finally able to develop a formula to combat the right. They're like, man, how can we do this? They're like, we're just going to cancel you. We're just going to make you. And it was initially, I was like, yeah, you know, good for them. They finally created something that they could latch on to. The right does it too. I mean, they just this, you know, past week, they, the RNC, you know, censured Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, two people who, when I was growing up were, you know, the stalwarts, you know, the arch conservatives of the party. And because they spoke up against insurrection and the party has chosen, you know, to go a certain way, they've been censored. So the right does it too. Both both sides of the political spectrum do it. But cancel culture is scary because we should look at human beings as people who evolve every day. Like um, Jordan Peterson wrote this great book called 12 Lessons for Life or 12 Rules for Life. And it was just you know, each day try to be a better version of yourself in even the slightest manner. So, yeah, I mean, what's the point of having a conversation? I love, you know, let's have a conversation about birth control and abortion and guns and, you know, gender roles and transgender. Bring it. I I love that because I want to come in with an open mind and I want to believe that even if we argue for an hour, you know, one speck or one morsel, one seed, so to speak, of wisdom is going to penetrate me and kind of stick with me. And that's the human condition. I mean, that's at least my goal. You know, I read books because we, as Harold Bloom would say, you know, we can't know enough people in this life. We can't encounter enough different perspectives. So you read them to be like, yes, I felt like that in that moment. And the books that last are not like, period pieces, you know, um, 
that you know are here they're popular and then all of a sudden they're gone but they've stuck with us so like oh yeah that's the essence of jealousy or like oh my god you want to read about a family going to descent read this book um it's all about being able to evolve and transgress you know just become something better than ourselves in any way you know whatever that may be that doesn't necessarily mean progress but just like seeing something from a different perspective you know i you, quite honestly i mean when I first came out to your mom and dad, it was at a restaurant and your dad was, you know, true to himself. He was just like, I don't necessarily understand or even agree with, you know, this lifestyle, but I love you, you know, and compare that to when I went and saw him in October and he was like telling us about all he's done for the trans kids at his school and like more. And I was like, who the hell are you? Yeah. You know, but that's been six years and you know i'm just like hell six years you know and this man's life from where he grew up to who his father was to you know what i know of him like that was just amazing Mm -hmm. and yeah it should that's that's the one thing about cancel culture is you know sooner or later you know John Stewart says, he's like, you know, the ones who talk about council bolts or morons are the ones who won't shut the fuck up about it. (laughs) And I really feel like it is. It's just, you know, like it's not the way to go. People are going to misspeak and people are going to have ideas. You know, I think Bill Burr, the comedian, has some really good stuff. too. He's like, yeah, five years ago, I probably had some really, you know, out of date material that is going to come back to haunt me. But isn't that the goal to like be outdated and not keep perpetuating this one thing, uh, this one bit over and over. So. Yeah. I I think, I think everything you're saying is a really intelligent and smart way of saying it. (laughs) And you, you are um, like clearly beyond intelligence and language and. Oh, stop. But, but I think like, I'm really understanding what you're saying to be that, like, just like what, what you quoted Bill Burr, like we, we evolve, we grow. And that's the point is that we should be looking back, you know, at what we've said and done 10 years ago and say, God, I'm so glad I'm better now. And, um, you also said something that really resonated with me as a parentified child. Um, this idea that we sort of hold the space for our parents and their generation and have this like undying empathy for them and understanding of like, Oh, you came from these, this like really hard place in society and the world. And now you're, you know, we understand why you do the things you do. And I'm kind of like, Oh, that like rubs up against part of me. That's like, I'm not responsible for, caring for you, you know, I'm I'm the child in this situation. And, and because you were not capable of, of, you know, having empathy and understanding for me, I'm doing that for you. Like, it's almost like we're having to nurture our parents as if they were our own child and like caring for them as they're learning these things. And that's frustrating while it's also like, you know, it's a good thing. And I recognize I'm glad I'm capable of that instead of just, like the bigger idea of cancel culture has infiltrated families, right? Like we cancel family members out because we just can't empathize with them. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be like that, but I'm also like, I'm not responsible for you. So I'm having a hard time finding the balance for myself. I I can't imagine what that's like, you know, I don't, I don't know how, you know, we talk about perspective, like I can offer all, you know, all this perspective all day, but I'm not a parent. Uh, I don't have children. Um, 
And I cannot imagine in this day and age where we have this overabundance of information, you know, the information age, you know, think about the, you know, the agricultural revolution took a thousand years, the industrial revolution took 200, the technological information age took, you know, 10. And I mean, that's just in the grand scheme of human history, just mind blowing. It really is. Um, You know, to have kids, I know just seeing perspectives from the one sibling I have that has a child, anything said in some sort of structured or disciplinary format really rubs my sister throwing away. And I didn't get it initially. And now I'm just like, yeah, she's trying to set down the road and create her own path. Mm-hmm. And my mom's modes, although done lovingly, are just not what she wants to do. And it's, um, it, I, I can't imagine how frustrating it is. I can't imagine how that groupthink mentality kind of works when it's like just kind of infiltrating, you know, schools or, oh, you don't do that yet. Just there's this constant, you know, air of judgment. And I feel just uh, uh, supervision and just, you know, just constantly being sought out for what's what's the best for your children. We're going to mess up, right? We're just, we're all to some degree broken. You know, uh, I had a friend the other day who he, he said he had something to tell me. And I was just like, oh, shit, did, like, what is going on? Is he like going to come out? Well, I just didn't know what to expect. And he was like, I, I think I need to go to therapy. And I was like, bro, if you are a man in your 30s today and want to be fully functioning, like you need to be going to a therapist. Like, And I stole those words from a lawyer that I met in a book club that was just a man's man cowboy boot and cowboy hat wearing scotch drinking and you know i was like cody like i hear you go to therapy what would you recommend And he was just like he pointed me in you know kind of some directions and he was like oh i just go and sob i just go and sob he was like it's all my childhood all the way i was raised you know stuff that i inherited from my parents and yeah it's um to inherit that view of just being like we're going to be telling you know we look at ourselves as like farther ahead, like, oh, we were the generation that accepted gays and, you know, we never really saw color, but we're going to be telling like our grandkids, you know, if you could just keep, you know, your soulmate in the same galaxy, like, you know, intergalactic marriages really never work. And <laughs> in our day and age, we married, it is, it's just, you know, Hell, I had a conversation two weeks ago, a very frank and uncomfortable conversation with a coworker, and she's in her, you know, late sixties, about to retire, and she's like, "Man, I'm sorry, I just don't think, you know, every time I see an interracial couple, I just it just rubs me the wrong way." And I was just like, you know, my automatic response would be like, "Brenda, we should not have this conversation." But I'm like, she was raised in Fort Worth in the sixties and seventies when. God, I mean, like, yeah, Fort Worth is still kind of a conservative bastion here in Texas. And yeah, she was raised in a very rural area and her father was a farmer. Like to look at it, not even as like backwards, but just look at the circumstances. Look like she, you know, did not encounter diversity and looking at her in a non-condescending way. I think that's why, you know, I'm of course going to veer this politically. You have like this just these triggers and these moments now where you can't even, God, I've heard in the last four years, I mean, 
families, like you said, being canceled, kids not even getting together with their parents because they're just, I'm not going to tolerate that. And it just came to this boiling point of just like one sign's looking at the other, like, bless your heart, poor you, kind of condescendingly. And the other side said, fuck you, we're going to double down. We're going to, like, we've raised you or we've kept this country going or I've kept this job that put food on the table like we're going to double down so I'm not going to listen to it's it's a religion we formed our own religion and it was based on like yeah a black person's life is the same as a white person's life you know like what if my kid what if I had an adopted kid that were black walking home down the street you know like I don't want to serve my kids processed foods that are going to give them, you know, colitis and ulcers later on down the road, you know, um, just all these things that we were in our own way looking out for them. And the irony is, is these ideals didn't come out of nowhere. We were taught them by our parents. Mm -hmm. I think the shock to them was like, holy shit, you believe in it. You ran, you, we sold you this ticket, you bought it, and then you ran with it. And now the world's unfolding in this way, uh, that we, you know, told you to believe and told you to, you know, embrace and uh, follow. We're just not ready for that much change that quickly. So kind of getting back to what you are, you know, I, that whole thing with the parents, like, yeah, it's, it's a dance. It's a dance that you do. Um, I don't have kids. And I feel like with kids, kudos to you and your siblings for having them. And, you know, at the end of the day, I view your parents through an aunt and uncle who are always very giving, very accepting to me. But in general, I just like, well, uh, give me a Xanax and uh, <laughs> a, a, a white claw and let's call it a day. Let's just ride this roller coaster. It's. Um, but isn't that so true that it's like maybe it's 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 a combination of everything like the the um, the way we were raised and that kind of culture that our parents formulated for us to exist in and the, the thinking that we've developed and then the influx of information and the influx of people's feelings. Right now, everybody's comfortable talking about their feelings. So it's like yeah. you know how everyone feels all the time. And then it can be like overwhelming. And so while. I would never say it like that to give me a Xanax and a white claw. I understand what you mean by saying it's overwhelming, right? Like I, I just have no more tolerance left for these feelings I'm having and I just need to like kind of numb out. And so how do we numb out in a way that's not going to be harmful to us? Because the way I learned how to numb out was just to like completely disengage. Like the way that it was modeled for me was definitely like a mix of like rage and alcohol but neither of those things work for me. And so, well, maybe rage, I tend to be a yeller, but um, yeah, like, I think that's kind of the the hard part, especially during COVID as a therapist, te- like trying to help people learn ways of escaping the intensity of everything that's happening and the intensity of the feelings they're having and, you know, relationship issues or even like work stuff comes up a lot. Like there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to escape all of this. So what do you do other than a Xanax and a white cloth? Like, what do you really do? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I joke around Xanax and a white claw. One Xanax is very hard to get your hands on. And I've been on it once and it's a wonderful thing, but it's highly addictive. Um, and I have a very addictive personality. I mean, I think you hit something on the head is, you know, I, uh, my struggles with alcohol will always be there. I've been in and out of AA for the last, you know, five years. And, you know, 
I want to throw the word control completely out the door because I don't want to say it's out of my control, but to think I have control over it is an illusion. Um, every day is just a, a battle and it's a battle that, you know, like I win more often than not now, but it is, you know, just one of those things that part of it's inherited, part of it's, you know, the collective trauma that we all just went through as humanity the last two years and we continue to go through uh part of it's you know what we were raised to cope with like to me you know and i i don't want to turn this into the blame game of fault for my parents because they weren't raised with it but like um exercise i mean exercise and meditation and meditation for whatever that may be is meditation you know sitting in the shower with some essential oils is it you know uh, kind of just, you know, drinking a cup of coffee an hour before your kids wake up and just kind of journaling. Is it for me, you know, I get up and I pour myself some hot water with a lemon and a little bit of cinnamon and read and just kind of decompress. And that is just my happy place. Um, no, I mean, we as human beings have never been, you know, we of course see news, but I think the pandemic, especially for me, I mean, I packed on 30 pounds in 2020. So you're preaching to the choir. It was just, I come home, gyms were shutting down, so I couldn't do that. And we have some beautiful running trails, but I just got to this habit of pouring a glass of wine and watching, you know, Nora O'Donnell and, you know, the CBS news team. And it was just, you know, we're not at that level. Humanity wasn't ready to like, at least for me, to see this suffering on such a global scale. Like people were dying everywhere. We didn't know what to do. People were like, well, they told us masks and then they told us no masks. And then they're saying this, they're saying that. Like the science was changing every day. Every day was today. Every day was just a, a meltdown. It was a shit show. No one knew what to do. No one knew how contagious it was. Is this dormant? Is it airborne? How long does it last? And, you know, every time they thought, well, it's only going to affect, you know, uh, the most at-risk people. It's older, only older people. And then you'd find, you know, a few cases of these kids in their 20s whose lungs were just completely emaciated. Um, it was just weird. And I definitely coped with it with alcohol and eating Jesus. I mean, that was a great combo. Um, the effects of with, I, I don't think we've even fully as a, a, definitely not as a nation, much less a society figured out like when this trauma is finally going to hit us, like when we're able to, like, maybe it won't, maybe we're just going to go with this. I feel like we're always going, you know, there's this line in the Shawshank Redemption. that's beautiful. When one of the prisoners who's been in prison for 50 years comes out, this character Brooks, and he almost gets hit by a car. And he was like, I saw one car as a kid and now they're everywhere. The world went and got itself in a big damn hurry. And I definitely, you know, I romanticize about living like in Boston and San Francisco in these big cities, which I do love. The food's great. The diversity's great. The diversity of ideas, the walkability. But like there is an aspect that sometimes just wants to be like, I want to go to a cabin with a book and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Do absolutely nothing like there was something really beautiful about christmas and new year's this year with families and i really pushed it with ronnie i was like i don't want to do shit i want to do you know i will grill because i love grilling i do not want to go see the christmas tree i want to spend it with us i want to just listen to christmas music just you know someone wants to go take a nap you know um 
I, I had a very similar experience this holiday season, and maybe it has a lot to do with what you're talking about of that. Like, when am I finally just going to let it go? Because even in COVID, there was the pressure to be doing something. There was the pressure to be like, how are you spending your COVID lockdown? You know, like, are you baking? Are you crafting? Are you finding your inner peace? And I'm like, why the hell do I have to be doing anything? I'm so stressed out just trying to live, just trying to stay alive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it was traumatic. And for someone like you, especially who's extremely crafty, it's especially innovative and has children. Like, I just don't know how they did it. Like, Quite literally, I mean, I want you to think about this. Like, could you imagine if this pandemic had come out like in 2000? I mean, I mean, your family had one computer, I think, that was like high speed. We didn't get dial up till my senior year of college. I'd applied to colleges like we would have. It would have been a fundamental way of restructuring like education. Like, OK, this group A is going to go to the gym at this time. And group B is going to go on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mm -hmm. um, we happen to be at this time where like you know, globalization is now the name of the game and, you know, these economies of scale. So we were able to go and be like, oh, if you have to buy, you know, if you have four kids, I hope you have four laptops. Um, it was just traumatic on so many levels as a parent, as a child, having to be indoors, um, as the teachers having to function, you know, and deal with being emotionally there for their kids online. Um it is. It, it, I, I think at the and you know, and then, yeah, of course, of course, our society was like, what's your side hustle and how are you coping with this? And, you know, here's here's, you know, like our gym was putting out, which I appreciated. You know, they were like, you can put wine bottles in a sack and, you know, do like deadlifts, you know, one wine bottle goes this straight. And I was just there were so many days where I came home and like I knew it was a problem when I just wanted to be numb. And the quickest way to numb yourself was with alcohol. Yeah. I just want to sit there and like poor Ronnie, who's much more patient, sensitive, um, and just understanding why <laughs> he was like, you know, you scare me when you don't want to talk because I'm naturally a very chatty person. And there were just a lot of nights where I just wanted to come home, sit on the balcony and just kind of like zone out, mm -hmm. check out. Um, you can't do that when you have kids, right? I mean, you have to constantly go. Um, so yeah, it's. But I think, but I think what you're saying, Matt, is like a lot of parents do check out, right? And then their kid, that's like, as a family therapist, I see that happen a lot. Like there's no real structure around like, how do we manage when we need to um, like let off the, you know, put on the brakes and let off the gas when it comes to like emotional tolerance and stuff. And when you said that thing about your gym, it really made me think about, and I, uh, you know, I have the privilege of not being addicted to alcohol. And so therefore I can make a statement like this that I do not adopt. And well, I'm a trained licensed substance abuse counselor. So I can say this with some authority, I do not adopt the mentality and the teaching of AA. Um, but I do think that culture has a lot to do with how our relationship with alcohol is and that the culture during COVID was very accepting of drinking. It, like it is in most places, like most times, but I think like that cultural, uh, relationship with alcohol was like, 
COVID is my coping. I mean, uh, alcohol is my coping tool during COVID. Yeah. And yeah. even like here on the, on the military base we live on, we have like Wednesday wine walks, like all these moms in the neighborhood grab their little gra- glass <laughs> of wine and they go out and they go for a walk. And I'm uh. like, why can't the walk just be enough? It always is like with the alcohol, right? Like why can't just lifting weights be enough? You got to have the wine. There were TikToks and videos of like moms, like, you know, they'd be like doing a squat and drinking a glass of wine. And then they'd like, this is how I'm working out during COVID. And I'm just like, why is our culture so intent on normalizing drinking? (laughs) Like drinking is bad for you. And nobody, not, not you, not me, not anyone was made to tolerate alcohol. No, so yeah. nobody's body was created to tolerate alcohol. Why are we making it a normal thing? It's just no science backs that up. I don't know where that came from. Yeah, it's, and we are definitely not a society that does anything in moderation. You know, I speak about America in general. So one, I have to say, I appreciate just how therapy savvy you are and just I love all the language you're using because it reminds me of my therapist <laughs> just although I don't abide by the philosophy of AA which AA out here in Fort Worth was just it was really hit and miss I went to like three and finally I found one because you know it's very infused with kind of like I don't want to I say this being very aware of I'm not trying to like be hipster or be like very millennial but it was very you know kind of Christian nationalism. It was just very infused. It was very male oriented. And I was just like, okay. Um, All that being said is we've completely normalized it. Um, It's, I don't know. It's, I'll say this after listening to you and your sisters talk on the podcast about, I think it was the book quit like a woman. I actually ordered that book because I, I was just wanted- gonna tell you to I just pulled it up on my audible I was like you need to get quit like a woman by Holly Whitaker and you've already done it so excellent I think it will resonate with you even though it's about the women's perspective it's really about the oppressed like it's about people who don't fit into that and it goes into the history of AA which you kind of touched on but yeah it's a for people who ha- don't have power which AA is for white men Christian who have power. Of course, yeah. the model is going to fit them, but it's not going to fit anybody else. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, my side of the family, we are, we are heavy drinkers and we drink, you know, anytime we get together, there's, there's not a time where, you know, you get together and I would say I'm grateful. And I, I generally mean this just hearing stories of some of my friends. I'm very grateful that my dad and my mom were never emotionally abusive with alcohol. They're, very silly, very carefree, very loving people um, when they drink, you know, so I can't say anything about that. And I'm not an ugly drunk. doesn't mean I like who I am at all. I don't think it's the best version of myself by any way, shape or form, but I'm high. Like my coping mechanism is this is I'm high energy as it is. I go into things and I'm like, I have a lot to talk about. And for the most part, I'm, you know, I, I've learned enough through social, you know, interactions throughout the years to not like, I'm not going to come in and be like I was 10 years ago. Like talking about like progressing as a human being, like 10 years ago, I would like, I don't know these people, I'm going to bring up abortion. Like you just like, I look at back at like 30, 26 year old man. I'm like, Jesus, man, like, 
it was just a lot to take. Those are just things you don't bring up people you don't know, or even just, you know, it's just their niceties. Like, is the conversation going this way? But all that being said is there's a lot that I enjoy talking about. And, you know, I find that when I don't drink these big get togethers, like I feel like I'm so present and I feel like they got all of me. Mm. There's like, you know, I want them to know me like, for my love of reading or travel or being a coffee snob or, you know, like, hell, if you're willing to talk about it, like, oh, let's talk about like gay sex or let's just talk about like intimacy in general. What is intimacy to you? And, you know, I'm down to talk about those conversations, but it's never gone in a good direction for me because I don't know how to drink. I do think there are people. I do think that, you know, I'm going to defend Ronnie here. Ronnie can have a glass of, you know, good bourbon and just like sip on that for two hours neat and then like put the glass down and then go get a LaCroix. And I'm like, I'm like what? what an interesting concept. <laughs> you know, it's just so foreign to me. I'm just like, wait, you don't drink just because you need that in your hand. And some bits, you know, you talk about these, we've normalized things. Like some of it is literally like the whole fact of just like, being with someone and having like something in your hand. Like when I go to social gatherings, I still like, I'll carry my own little pack of LaCroix, probably the gayest thing I've ever said. Um, my, my, I'll bring like four LaCroix just cause you know, it's that whole thing of like, I don't have beer in my hand. Let me have my LaCroix. And it's just, you know, these things that have become normalized in our head. We've just developed these habitual motions it's muscle memory it is literal muscle memory like i like something in my hand i like something busy here's a Lacroix. i'm gonna be okay well and that's what i love about this book is it really touches on that and i i kind of understood these things before i had the language to talk about it but that like you want to fit in and you don't want to stand out and you don't want to you want to like feel like you're being normal and not calling attention to your problems. Right. And so if you're not drinking at a party and someone offers you a drink and you're like, Oh no, I'm good. It's like, Oh, you you know, let me just get you a drink. You're like, no, really I'm good. And they're like, Oh, just one. You're like, no, I'm good. I don't need a drink. But when you have, and this is something I always do out, I'm not perfect at it, but I will just order like a club soda with lime in it. And no one knows that it doesn't have any. Oh, absolutely. You just feel like you're just fitting in. And so it's that it's like the the muscle memory habit kind of thing. And also that like socializing, normalizing your behavior. And I remember when I first started, well, Nathan doesn't drink and he hasn't had alcohol since he came back from Saudi Arabia deployment. And um, he doesn't even like make a big deal about it. He's so good about not even he'll just say, no, thank you. Like he's so good. Mm-hmm. Whereas I would probably, if I quit drinking, I'd be like, I'm sober everybody. Like, yeah. But yeah. Um, I really don't drink alcohol. And so in an attempt to be like participating in not drinking with Nathan, I will like buy the non-alcoholic spirits or try like the yeah. non-alcoholic wines. And I remember probably in the beginning of COVID my sister Becky was like, well, what's the point in that? Like, why don't you just get like a club soda or something? Like, what's the point in that? I'm like, well, it's sort of like now culture is shifting and normalizing that we can like have these fun mixed drinks and still enjoy like the fancy glassware and things like that Mm -hmm. without having the alcohol part to it. Like they're not, they don't have to be combined and together. 
Absolutely. And I would not have believed in that until like on for my coping mechanism beyond, you know, what I tell you about the LaCroix is for those who are close to me. um, It's been a very liberating conversation because I just straight up told people like I have an alcohol problem and they're just like, get it conversation later, you know, and I love it. I love like, let's talk about my struggles with that. Let's talk about just, I love just, I call it the dregs. Let's just get in the dregs. Let's just sit through this raw emotion and trauma. And that's not everyone's cup of tea. My sister is the antithesis of that. She does not want to, she wants to put a lid, you know, cement it down and chain it up. And that is her way of doing things. And I respect that. Like I want to get in it and I can jump out of it really quickly. Um, but you know, when I tell people that it's liberating and it just prevents like a lot of awkward conversation later, but yeah, they, in having that combo, I've had friends who have gotten me non-alcoholic wine and it's just like, it's literally the same taste. Like it's, you're not going for poor quality. I've had non-alcoholic IPAs and I love IPAs. Um, you're typically not getting the calories. Um, I mean, arguably it's not the same taste, but nothing to where you're spitting out the stuff. It's, it's legit. You're getting this, the same product. And yeah, it says, it, it, it says a lot about like what you're going through and what you, what your intentions are going in mm-hmm. to drinking alcohol. And, you know, I think that's something that therapy has really opened my eyes to is just, what is the end game here? What, what is our intention? Because, you know, no one tells you, you know, going in your twenties where you get drunk, you can pass out for an hour and then bounce back and then have like a second wind. All of a sudden your metabolism slows down. It continues to slow down. Um, and you can't process. I mean, and if you want to get real scientific, like we come from Hispanic blood, mestizo blood, um, that, you know, it's been, you know, proven that we cannot metabolize alcohol as well as, you know, maybe more Nordic mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> or Caucasian, you know. Uh, I don't know why I'm uh, laughing. Bloodlines. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just alcohol hits me harder now. And it's yeah. just it, it it takes a whole toll. And it's just I think for me, for someone who's love language is definitely it spans many of the categories, but one of my tops is quality time. I'm like, I am wasting a lot of quality time by recovering. Um, well, and it's, it's whatever it was doing for you as like that maladaptive coping skill. It's not doing it anymore. It's not working. And that's, I, I find that to be with a lot of the the clients I work with and people in our kind of age group at this time in our life, that alcohol is a coping tool. It just doesn't work. Like I feel 10 times worse the next day, or even when I'm drinking, I feel the shame. And so I'm not escaping those feelings that I wanted to escape initially. Um, Or like people start looking at me differently and my relationships are, are starting to thin out because I'm doing this. Whereas everyone was participating in our twenties. Now I'm the only one doing it. It's not as fun and it just doesn't work. So I think like, well, and this is something I found interesting in school, two out of three people who have uh, an addiction or a bad relationship with drugs and alcohol get sober on their own. Two out of three. That's like a huge number. That's a that's, oh, that's phenomenal. That's, that's a great yeah. stat. 
And that, and that one third of the population that has addiction struggles, they, they just need a little bit more help or they need a little more adjustment or more support. But two out of three people, they see that, okay. And I think that the, I don't remember exactly like when the age was like by 40 or something, but it's because it doesn't work and they recognize that. So then they can replace it with something else. And I think that's kind of where a lot of people that I know in our, in our age group are, are at where they're like, this just isn't what I want to do anymore. You know, it goes back to that generational talk again, right? Like we're in this, we're in the same transitory phase that are, you know, I'm going to generalize this and say that our mothers were in like, how am I going to raise my kids? Am I going to, you know, like, um, are they going to be completely submissive to men? Are they going to be, you know, uh, you know, just people who repress their feelings, you know, or are we going to demand their unrelenting silence? Um, and I think they buck the trend for the better. You know, I th- I'm glad that we are, you know, in our thirties, able to talk about our emotions and able to convey to our partners, like what we want in the bedroom, you know, I can, I can assure you with confidence that my mother and, you know, mom, please, if you're listening, call me, text me, tell me I'm wrong, but I can assure you, my mom did not think about those things. I had a conversation with her around Christmas. Cause I was wrapping Christmas presents and I was like, uh, we somehow the topic of like periods and like menstrual cycles. And then we like started talking about sex and I was like, one, nobody taught me how to use a tampon. Sorry. And I know you're a man, so this isn't something you necessarily. No, I love it. I love it. But but no no one ever taught me how to use a tampon. Um, And I was a swimmer, so I had to wear a tampon. I couldn't wear a pad in the pool. Like that doesn't, that doesn't work. So I had to learn from my friends. Sorry, there's, there's, there's a great show cartoon on Big Mouth and it goes to this. The kids are going swimming in the pool and one of the girls gets her period and she uses her maxi pad and it's this big joke. Like it soaks up all the water in the pool. Oh. But anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll send you the clip. It's, it's phenomenal. It's exactly what I imagine would happen. Right. Where it's just like horrible. You can't even fathom the embarrassment that would come. So I learned from this girl in my class, Amanda Rubio, and she taught me how to use a tampon in the bathroom at my house, like horrifying, embarrassing, terrible, a memory that will last with me for the rest of my life. Okay. So then fast forward, I'm like telling my mom this, you know, and she's listening and she's always a good listener. And, um, and I'm like, you know, I just feel like there were so many things about my body that I didn't learn. And she's like, well, what do you mean? And then I can sense like her defensiveness coming up. Like mm-hmm. I failed you and you're calling me a failure. So I'm like, I just think that it was like, you like, they don't think about that stuff. So I told her like, I never had an orgasm until I married Nathan. I didn't yeah. even, I didn't even know what that was. Like, I didn't know what my <laughs> body parts were, like what a clit was or anything. I'm sorry. I know we're family. Like, but it's just, oh, it was, no, I love it. it's just one of those things where I was like, I just didn't know. And, and I'm like, I wish you would have told me, I wish you would have taught me about my body. She's like, well, nobody wants to learn from their mom. I'm like, who the hell was I supposed to learn from? Oh, I don't yeah, know. It- <laughs> It's, we're burning the candle at both ends here because, <sighs> yeah, I mean, we did not talk about our bodies. We were, me and my sister were not comfortable with, with our bodies and whether, you know, this whole, like, I love this whole, like, love your body and don't body shame because I definitely like Jesus. I had back knee and, you know, like I was afraid to take off my shirt and I hit puberty like at 13 hard. So I was just like, uh, 
just hairy and you know, but no one, you know, George Lopez talks about this bit. He was just like, no one told me I was going to get pubic hair. You know, I looked down at my underwear. I was like, I you going? You know, uh, it it is. It's, you know, we're alienated from our bodies and it's it's already uncomfortable. We're one, bleeding, developing odors. We want to rub against everything. Um, you know, it's just, you know, all these different things. Uh, add in throw in you know anything else that makes us unique you know i'll never forget when you show we were in albuquerque and we were watching the box which was you know just music videos 24 7 and i saw the 18s and i was like oh man way to add in something a wrench right now like looking at these two little twinky boys like has definitely got me all sorts of feeling weird you know it's an awkward age and our parents generation failed they failed. And uh, I say this with confidence because, you know, my sister was not that, you know, she's a loving mom who's still with a very loving, wonderful husband. And they're raising their child with just, you know, immense amounts of love. And they've done very well for themselves. I'm very proud of them. But like we never had, you know, there's a PBS special on sex and it was very much shaming sex, like mm-hmm. very 1950s mentality um, of just don't have it, abstinence only. And there's just so many things wrong with it. Abstinence only, you know, although it may work for some people, it fails at the level. This whole thing of just, you know, teaching abstinence only is not, you know. And then you feel like you're, that just elicits more shame because it's like your natural body absolutely. instinct and is to explore. And then you're being told don't. And you're like, but I really want to. So what's wrong with me? Yeah. There's, there's a great book out there called tell me what you want. And it's about, you know, our sexual fantasies and just normalizing, you know, kink, you know, everything from like very healthy kink, from like dress up to like unhealthy kink, like pedophilia. Um, but not only unhealthy, like illegal. Um, but you know, it talks about it. And my biggest thing with being able to talk about stuff like this, it's just, all I want to know is the numbers. Like, what does this benefit society? If I tell my kid, like, what does it matter that I'm more progressive? I get to shame you. Like they've proven it. The stats just show like in these, you know, um, the Netherlands, Amsterdam, Norway, Finland, Sweden, they teach their kids at a very young age. This is your penis. This is your vagina. These are yours. Like no one should be touching these and making you feel uncomfortable. You know, they have lower rates of, you know, family members molesting children, lower molestation rates in general, lower teenage pregnancy rates, lower rates of, you know, domestic abuse. It just, you know, it's this trickle down effect of just being comfortable with your body and teaching it oh my God, we're talking about the biology right now. We could have a whole other podcast session on consent. Mm-hmm. You know, when they talk about consent, I never learned about it. And it doesn't mean that I was just, this person who was just like, I'm going to go and, you know, pummel everything. I was just very, very isolated. I didn't want anyone to know my sexual preferences as it was. I was not a confident kid, but like when in any of these books did they talk about like, you should probably have a conversation before you engage in any act of intimacy if the other person's okay with it you know which is just mind-blowing to me but you know you look at our stats and you know for being this first world country like our stats are terrible and you know i'll argue like we're a little you know we fall into that line of like britain and germany we're a little more conservative in that aspect you know i'm talking more about the netherland countries but like 
the rates are just dismal here where we have kind of this fundamentalist approach or not even like fundamentalist just out of sight, out of mind. Like we're just not even going to talk about it. But I think that has a lot to do with like the rate at which our culture moves. And this is something I think has been like the thread of this entire episode is that like we move so fast from one thing to the next and, you know, piggybacking on podcast episodes about different topics, the way we treat children is horrific as a culture and as a society, we don't even necessarily view children as human beings. And so I think that like that culture in the United States and culture and just even in, I guess, like generational cultures too, like they all, they all have such an impact on how we interact with each other and like how we view each other. I just, I don't even know what I'm, the point is that I'm making. I just think it's like, I'm agreeing with you very much that I think if our cult, like you have to change culture first. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think we're cult, and it's, I'm seeing kind of, it's interesting because I've always taken the approach that like change starts with the family. And, mm-hmm. and once you change the family, then you'll start to change things. But then I realized, well, culture influences the family so much because the way our parents parented had a lot to do with culture. So it's just like this wheel, right? Like oh, how absolutely. we get out it's, of the wheel. This is self-fulfilling prophecy. And it is, you know, the wheel is a great analogy. Um, I think, you know, we're talking about this. I think that one day, hopefully, Joaquin and uh, Louie and Johnny are going to be, you know, talking to us in our old age and telling us like, man, like drinking was like a thing for you guys, huh? Like it was just something you guys... But you had to do like in college and it's just going to be one of those things like they're going to be, you know, we're doing the best we can with the tools we have now. And in 30 years, they can have a podcast or, you know, be sending, you know, tele telekinetic messages to each other like they book up like they, they just, you know, it's the way it goes. And that makes me happy. That makes me happy that we're learning and trying to do what's best, you know, or better. And, you know, they're going to look at things and mean like. Yeah, you know, if what Ronnie has told me is true and they're just more in touch with their emotions, you know, just even you read these. I, I love reading um, any sexual uh, psychology books or articles and, you know, kids are having sex at a lower rate now. And, you know, I think they're being more careful and not necessarily like put a condom on it, careful, just like maybe I should love myself before I go and engage with someone in some sort of sexual act before because I know when I went to college like granted I was in the closet and there were definitely urges there the I don't know if you want to call it sexual liberation it was just there was so much of it going on all the time I think I was like a prude or something or I just wasn't included in that group but <laughs> later after college and you like have your high school reunion and you just start like everyone's I did not realize so many people in my high school class were having like orgies and sex party I'm like well I'm really glad I wasn't in that group because like I would have felt horrible about myself if I had to like try to I mean I'm so codependent I would have tried to like live up to the expectations of the party host and hated myself for it so yeah I just I think sex is definitely something that's so complicated for our generation and just that alone like should I be free should I be concerned uh my my supervisor says it's like um the Madonna complex like you want Madonna 
in public, like the, not Madonna, like the singer, like you want the, like the virgin, the holy person out in public, but then you want like the freaky lady in the bed. And it's like that, how do you, like, how do you find that person? Yeah. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's that line. It's, we've come full circle, so to speak of just that, you know, that line that our, our parents had to walk between, you know, uh, progress and tradition. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a great topic to talk about because it changes with the times and it's, you know, something that, you know, like I said, our, our grandkids are going to be talking about it, you know, just like, Oh, they're so conservative, you know, like it, it's, it, it's just, you know, it's an interesting topic to talk about because it's not a period piece. It's just what the best books are written about. Mm-hmm. Well, it is definitely more difficult when, you didn't have that conversation with your adults, with your adults, with your parents. And then you're trying to figure out how to have that conversation with your own children. So talking about masturbation or um, your body or puberty and the changes that come, like how do I don't, you have to rely on resources. I buy books. I listen to podcasts. I, I talk to people and collect all this information and try to find that narrative of how I can like express this to my child. I think that's just that is how our, our generation is as millennials, as 30 something year olds, we are like, give us all the information. I want to make an informed decision. And like, even talking about alcohol, uh, Joaquin, my 10 year old, he asked, you know, Oh, is that like, do you drink and what is alcohol? And that's for adults only. And the way I talk to him about it is so different than how I was talked to about it. Yeah. So I think I'm going off on a tangent here just because, you know, you're a therapist and you turn to resources. You know, you have three affectionate boys who, you know, are very, I feel emotionally intelligent. I feel just affectionate in general when you encounter them. How, how is that? Conversation because I've always wanted to be, you know, I've I've come across the situation where my friends right now have infants. So their biggest thing is just like, when are we gonna be able to get sleep? Or, you know, I'm just making sure we get through, you know, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But like for your boys that, you know, Joaquin's on the cusp of puberty right now, like how do the conversations go? Do you and Nathan believe in like, hey, like Joaquin needs deodorant, you need to have that talk, like, hey. Oh, he might discover porn soon. Like you need to have that talk or is a conversation that you guys have together. Like, how does that go? I think it's, it's really difficult because Nathan is in the military. And so he's not always around when things happen. Um, but he and I are very good at communicating like, Hey, this came up. I had to talk about it or like, Hey, I don't really know what to say. And you're not here. Like, but, um, I think for the most part, our philosophy is to be honest, to be just completely honest, like, yes. And, and to normalize things. So all three of our kids are five, seven, and 10, they wear deodorant and they smell and they need deodorant. And and I say like, I wear deodorant, Pablo wears deodorant. We keep the deodorant by the front door so that they put it on before they leave. And I say, you know, you got to just, you got to smell good. You got to take care of your body. We make it like more of a normal thing. And, and it should be that because deodorant was, it's one of those moments that it didn't scar me, but like, I was so nervous to ask for it. And I started wearing deodorant. God, man, bear with me here. Midway through sixth grade, 
I'd stunk since like the end of fourth grade. So I would go at lunch with that chalky soap that they used to have in the dispensers and wash my bits. Not because my parents shamed it. It was just like one of those things we didn't talk about it. So when I finally had the courage, my mom's like, oh, like literally we were at Walmart. We were in line deodorants, like right there by the, by the front entry doors of Walmart. And I said, uh, mom, can I go get some, uh, old spice? And she looks at me like wide eyed, probably a little like shame filled. And she's like, oh my God, I forgot. Yes. Like, just like one of these things, like, yeah, you're a uh, 12, 13 year old boy um, who has PE in the middle of the day. Like, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. Gets, what can gets made fun of at school for being super sweaty. And I think as like Hispanic people, we just, oh, yeah. we just yeah. come with sweat. Like, and <laughs> I remember like a similar feeling of in middle school and, and high school. And even still sometimes today, the pit stains of like the nervous, oh, yeah. the nervous yeah. sweat, which like smells even worse too. And I just remember all through middle school and high school, I would wear a jacket, like an athletic jacket. So I could never wear cute clothes. I never felt comfortable. I wasn't overweight. I wasn't, I didn't have any other problem. I sweat. And I can see as my fifth grade son comes home from school playing outside football and he's just covered in sweat. And he's like, people won't stop making fun of me because I sweat so much. And I was like, triggered, I'm triggered. I'm having like flashbacks of my own childhood Yeah. to not like project my issues onto him, but use it to like guide me in supporting him and be like, you know what? Sweating sucks. Like I don't need to try to make him feel better, but I can tell him he's not alone. Like sweating sucks. And I remember sweating as a kid and it was really hard to get around it. And it just really sucks. Um, (coughs) you ever want to know what I did? Like we can talk about it, but it's, it's hard. It's hard to not want to fix your kids, but I will say there are times when you really have to have good boundaries because like the porn thing, kids have access to so much more than we did. And And I truly believe that pornography and any kind of um, like sexual imagery is dangerous for kids because their brains are developing and their arousals developing. And so I think a, a lot of kids who watched pornography when they were like 12 at 12 years old and up, that's how like their brain formulated their sexual um, arousal. Yeah, and so yeah. it's kind of like, okay, I just, I want him to explore himself first. So like normalizing that, but also you can't be looking up stuff also too. Like everything is connected, right? Like our clouds are connected. Our computers are connected. God forbid he looks up one thing on his iPad and it starts showing up on his brother's iPads or our our regular, like, so just having (laughs) very strict, but you have to talk about it. I can't just expect him to know you can't be Googling or YouTube searching, you know, these things. So yeah. And, and yeah, it's hard and it's awkward. It does not feel comfortable to talk about stuff with your kids at all. Yeah, but I, I admire you for doing it because it is just one of those things like you hear it all the time on like interviews or what, you know, I, I've read in books just like, oh, my God, it's how would I talk about that? It's so uncomfortable. I'm like, versus what versus, you know, your teenage daughter coming in, you know, because you didn't have to talk about condoms or birth control versus what your son being accused of rape because he, you know, thought it was OK to 
dry hump against a girl, you know, in high school. It's just, yeah, it's just good. Well, not even good insurance. It's just raising a good human, mm-hmm. a good human. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, think we're talking about, you know, how quickly society moves nowadays. I mean, there's a great series on Netflix called, uh, well, it's, it's multi-gen, it's like the seventies and it's like the movies, the TV shows, the, the political movements, the toys, the, you know, anything that happened and it's for each generation. And it's crazy to think that we just watched one on the 2010s the other day because oh that generation is done now, but I was, you know, watching one on the nineties and, you know, you had Netscape come out and then there were the, you know, the big, trials you know the u.s versus bill gates because he came out with internet explorer and he wanted that to be you know the only internet browser but you can't talk about the advent of the internet without talking about porn because porn was such a catalyst for like getting the internet better and getting it more quickly you know uh dispersed so yeah within our lifetime we're talking about Hell, Annalise, I remember when we would go to your house and you were such a computer whiz, you know, we were in like chat rooms. And I remember one time we were just playing a simple game of like checkers with a guy and you're like being like, yeah, you could talk about anything like and you were, you know, what do you feel about Star Wars episode one coming out next year? Because you were like trying to get this guy to like, you know conversation geared more towards me. And he was just like, yeah, what about your tits? And you were like, OM, you're like, OMG didn't exist. So you're like, ew. And then you were like, you put an asterisk mooning you. <laughs> um, so I want you to talk about like, just like the innocence of that and how we combated it. Like in seventh grade, 1998, around, you know, circa. Um, and the fact that like in our lifetime, in a mere, you know, uh, 20 years, we've gone from just like that to just like, porn being available anywhere well porn being basically on like nighttime television right like i watch law and order svu which is not about porn necessarily it's about sex crimes and some of the like intros to the episode when the sex crime is being committed is porn not like soft corn porn i'm like this is on in like on regular tv that's crazy yeah. or tiktok i mean tiktok is like the devil's app and i love it i love tiktok and like yeah i my mom and dad asked they're like do you my parents are or become so internet savvy they're like you don't have tiktok and i was like i'll tell you why i don't do it because i have an addictive personality like the shelf behind me like this thumb here pointing like two years ago i got into the civil war and then i was like well i'm gonna read everything about the civil war you know, it's just one of those things. Like I have, uh, what is it? I have very high stimuli. So I need like, mm-hmm. just I'm go, go, go when I do something. So yeah, I don't need TikTok in my life because I know I get addicted to it. it the videos that I've seen sent to me, they're hilarious. Yeah. I mean, and that's kind of the fun thing is when you just have people who will send them to you and you just don't. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My my problem with TikTok is, and I love how we're flowing through this conversation because now we're talking about TikTok, which is hilarious. Talk about generational stuff, but um, (laughs) TikTok for me is such an emotional experience. And I don't know if this is for everybody. My mom was talking about this um, a couple of weeks ago, some article she read or YouTube she watched. That's like her thing is YouTube. Um, sorry, that was a dig, a very passive aggressive dig in my mom. <laughs> 
sorry. Jeez, mom, I'm sorry. What's I gonna say anything? I was like, God damn, girl. I know. Um I'm coming hard. Uh no, my my uh mom said something about like the science or the psychology behind the TikTok roller coaster, which is they're like really short videos. I'll watch one and I'm bawling crying. Like it's this emotional thing about a horse getting rescued and it's beautiful and the music. And then the next one is like someone tripping on ice and like I'm laughing my ass off. So in the span of a minute, I have gone from the highs and lows of emotions and I will sit on TikTok for like 20 minutes. I'll get off and I'll be like, I'm freaking exhausted. This is too much. So I have toned down how much I'm on it simply because I emotionally cannot handle the roller coaster it takes me on. Yeah. Yeah. Your body's like, what is all the stimulus coming from? Um, It's a lot to handle. Well, now I've just filled that time with making my own videos and I've become one of those influencers on Instagram (laughs) and I swore I would never do it. And then suddenly I'm here. I bought a ring light. I have my own freaking standing ring light. And I'm like posting reels on Instagram. Follow me like for more. I'm like, what am I turning into? Uh, I don't know. I guess so. I've always been a performer and this is like the, the, this is the way to do it. Right. I'm just changing with the times I'm adapting to the times. I think you are adapting to the times and you have always been a performer. I mean, God, from when we were little kids and you know, you've always been genuine to yourself. So I'm always down, you know, I think when you (laughs) introduced me to this podcast, I didn't necessarily know what to expect, but I absolutely love the first episode I started off with because it was you and your sisters and you guys were talking about serious stuff. And I I was listening to it with Ronnie and I was laughing and he's like, why are you laughing? They're not necessarily talking about funny stuff. And I was like, you gotta remember, I grew up with these, you know, like all three of these girls and now they're on a podcast talking about very serious things. Like there's an aspect of it that is just kind of adorable, you know, in a non-condescending way. But yeah, you are, you are adapting to the times. And I think, you know, at your core, Ronnie and I always have this conversation of just being true to ourselves. And it's just like, you know, as gay men in this day and age, you know, Jesus, you talk about influencers, you have to have a six pack and you have to have, a, you know, uh, you know, a hundred dollar haircut and you have to have, you know, your dog's Instagram page and, you know, do, you know, we have, I'll quote for, you know, quote unquote friends, you know, um, many of our friends are straight heterosexual couples and I think they've been great inspiration for us for stability and what to expect and just good people in general and that doesn't say the gay couples are but I do think gay couples are kind of starting off in their infancy as far as healthy nurture relationships are concerned in the grand scheme of history um but you know it's just we're more concerned not necessarily about you know not I tell Ronnie not that we're feeding our friends when they come over, who cares what plates they're on? Not necessarily, you know, that all the plates are matching when everyone comes over. And, you know, that's the core of who we are. We're very much interested about, like, we have the credo, you know, our door is always open. You know, we will feed you, we will give you drink. And we mean that, you know, if you're down on your luck or if you just need to get away, you know, we're happy to have you over. Um, 
but also, you know, and hope we love hosting. We love, you know, engaging in good conversation. And that's at the core of it is just not gossip, not, you know, bitching. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we were talking with, we, we took engagement photos this morning. Um, God, I'm trying to talk about like <laughs> these stereotypes. And I'm like, I'm a gay man. And we just took our engagement photos. This <laughs> you are not. That is such a normal thing to do. Engagement photos. That's oh, we a- did it. And we had this phenomenal photographer and she's just talking about, you know, when we met and everything. And I was telling her, I said, and she's like, when did you know Ronnie was the one? I was like, Oh, very early on. Very, very like probably too early for him. Um, and I say that because, you know, it wasn't, I, I don't want to fall into this category of just, Oh, I dated so many bad guys. I came out of 28. I came out later, par for the course with my, you know, demographic. Um, And, you know, initially you just want to experience what everyone else experienced in middle school. So you're catching up with kissing and holding hands and cuddling and all that. But, you know, you're also discovering who the hell you are. And I said, you know, I was out in the dating field for two years you know, not necessarily the best version of myself. There was a lot of dates that, had, you know, it's just, it was like, let's go drink, let's go drink. You're nervous, but then it just kind of goes into something else. So when I found Ronnie, I had been sober for three months. I've been exercising and running a lot. I'd just been meditating. And I was like, it was the perfect time for me to meet him. Um, but, uh, you know, I feel that having dated, like the one thing for me is, came out of 28. I hadn't read gay literature. I hadn't read a lot of like, like actual like fiction books or even like nonfiction, but I felt like there was this kind of stereotype of like, it's expected, like you're gay. We're going to meet for a date on a Sunday. Let's do brunch, drink rosé and just bitch about other gays or just, you know, the straights. And it just wasn't me. It was just like, can we talk about like, I don't books or I don't know. There was just so much to talk about. I didn't like, I was like, is this what being a gay man is? And obviously what I'm getting to is it's not, they're not all guys were like that, but you know, getting back to you doing this, like, Oh my God, I'm doing this. But you know, I think you're the nail on head. You've always been a performer. You're just adapting to the times. You know, you're having these conversations that pertain to you being a parent, pertaining to you being Chicana in this day and age, pertaining to you being, you know, going, walking the line of progress and tradition while being in the information age, while being in a society that, you know, judges you for everything that you do and is willing to cancel, you know, you at every step. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I think, the most, you know, in an ironic way, the most natural step forward for you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I appreciate Given all those caveats. I didn't really think about it like that, but I think that you're definitely right. And uh, I don't know. I feel like I could talk to you forever, but we really probably have hit like the, the end of our time of capacity for people to listen. <laughs> like I That I, and I have like a bowel movement. Like I've had three cups <laughs> of coffee and now this tea, this gin, three ginger tea. So... I have something you in the works. Yeah, perfect. Again, full circle. We started off with poop. We're ending with poop. Oh my God, I love it. I am so happy that you joined me. I'm really grateful that you were vulnerable with me and opened up with me. And, um, you know, I have like five listeners. So these five listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get canceled by my own family. For I know, time. right? That's the only people who listen. That's not true. I do I do average about 100 listeners. So, you know, to my 100 listeners, thank you so much. I'm so glad you got to meet my cousin, Matthew. 
Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to join this podcast again. I cannot believe I barely jumped on the bandwagon in the last week, but I've absolutely smitten with the podcast. Um, so keep on doing what you're doing. And I'm happy to help contribute to anything you have going forward because this is obviously a passion project. And I think it's for your fight in the good fight. I think it's a great conversation to have and I love it. Well, and my hope is, is that people can see that talking to your family is the most important thing. And I think that's really what we touched on today. And what I'm taking away from it is that like just continuing to have those difficult conversations, talk about things that are important and throw in a poop joke every now and then. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. What else is there? I, I don't know. That's the best life. That's the life I want. So, well, thanks for joining. I know you're going to come back again because we've got to have you on with my dad. It's a dynamic that everybody must experience. Oh, so, yeah. 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 Definitely the, the, coming on for a family personalities time. in the room for that one. <laughs> yes. Well, I will see you next Saturday, yeah. uh, which I'm looking very forward to. And yeah, you guys enjoy. I know Nathan's like sobbing in the shower right now while listening to Annie Lennox, <laughs> but, uh, cause this poor 49 ers in the make, which I feel for him genuinely, but, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's enjoy some, uh, poor eating decisions tonight. Yes. For the Super Bowl, I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait. All right. Absolutely. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. And I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. I feel for like having... I put my podcast voice on right there. Like, thank you for coming. <laughs> I love no. I love your intro and your exit. They're great. They're great. Uh, well, now that you've been a guest, you have to like, like, follow, share, and just send it to everybody you know. One hundred percent. Absolutely. I'm all about it. All right. Well, don't forget to wipe your ass twice. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. So love you. All right. I love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. If you want to hear more from the good, the bad, the family, please subscribe. Or you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at MFT. Thanks for listening. I'm a licensed and trained marriage and family therapist but this podcast is not a replacement for therapeutic advice. If you need help finding a therapist, visit psychologytoday.com to find a therapist in your area.